Please turn with me to John chapter 18. We're going to spend one more sermon in John this week. John 18. We had to cover a lot last week. I was very thankful for uh, having Patrick preach last Sunday. I heard he did an, an outstanding job. Look forward to next Sunday. I don't actually get to sit in services where I hear the word preached in my own congregation, in my own church. So next week I get to do that, where I'll get to receive the word as Patrick preaches, and I won't have any other responsibility. So I get to be a congregant next week. I can't tell you how excited I am for that. Uh, It'll be good for my own soul, my own edification. So no pressure, brother, but bring the word. John 18, there there was a section in John I had to fly over for the sake of finishing the chapter and helping us understand the providence of God, leading us through, showing us how God providentially had to work through the Roman government, had to work through the nation of Israel to accomplish the actual promise of Christ being crucified on a tree. Uh, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 21. So we, we were able to do that. But in doing so, I had to fly over a statement that Jesus makes, this conversation that he has with Pilate. And there was no way I was going to try and do it justice uh, in the short amount of time I had last time. So I'm going to go back and give you a fuller explanation of really all of John. And this language of kingdom he uses this language of kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, uh, often. And so... We're going to look at what, how Jesus uses it here in John chapter 18. So read with me John 18, 33 and following. He says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, I am, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Uh, There's a very important concept happening here that not only Israel missed, but also we, I think, modern day Americans have missed what Jesus is getting at. And the purpose, one of his death and two of his kingdom. In the world's history, there was a famous city known as the Eternal City, because of its long-standing power and structure. In 410 AD, this, this city was sacked by the pagans and shocked not only the city, but the rest of the known world because this famous city was Rome. There were two famous responses to this within the Christian, the, the sacking of Rome. To, uh, the, the responses were from two famous Christians within the Christian community. The first one was by... Jerome, a prominent and celebrated church father, he fell into hopelessness stating this, what is to become of the church now that Rome has fallen? So that was one response to the fall of Rome. There was a second and opposite response from another famous church father, 
uh, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, and he wrote what became to be known one of his famous books called The City of God. Now, Augustine didn't, uh, didn't see the fall of Rome as a means for despair, but God bringing the mission field to the missionaries. The only concern he had was, was there any missionaries left in the city after the destruction? The reason I mentioned this book is that uh, Augustine helped establish what has become known today as the doctrine that is called two kingdoms, two kingdom theology. Augustine distinguished between two cities in this book, the city of God and the city of man. The cities are established by one, by love, the love of God. And the second, the city of man is the love of self. The love of God establishes true fellowship and communion of common giving and receiving. In this book, the love of self stimulates strife, war, and the need to dominate others. So both of these cities are not just happenstance, which is a biblical perspective, but completely a part of God's eternal plan and accomplishing redemption here on this earth. Now, it is true that the city of man will eventually be destroyed and replaced by the city of God. But God does bring common grace to maintain peace and justice until Jesus returns. So until the return of Christ, the city of man in Augustine's book is governed by God's grace. The common grace, this concept or this theological term, historically means that God suppresses evil in this world by the, uh, for the benefit of all, not just citizens of his own city. This can be seen in an example of Matthew 5.45, where the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So God's common grace suppresses evil for the benefits of all, not just his citizens. First, so the, there, the, the point of this, the, the two citizenships, is that there's requirements that are put on these two citizenships. Citizenships, I'm going to get it. I shouldn't have had that donut. Is there any left? Just kidding. First, we are part of God's family and belong to his body and must love and serve this body. So this is the requirement of the first citizenship, right? Citizens of God's city. The requirement that's put upon them is that we belong to God's family and we must love and serve this family. The second citizenship that we have is that we are citizenships of this country. And because of this, we are also not only responsible as citizens, but we're also parents and children, friends, co-workers, and neighbors. So there's dual citizenship going on here, that of the family of God and that which is in this society and all of this society is made up of these relationships. So because of God's common grace, there can and will be times of peace and comfort within the city of man. But there will always be citizens of the city of God bringing justice and peace through the message of the gospel. We cannot mix the two, thinking that the gospel message or the gospel advancement is equating the peace and justice we are experiencing now. A good example of this um, that is often referenced is Daniel. For those of you who know the story of Daniel, <clears throat> Daniel is living as an Israelite in Babylon, so two kingdoms. And in this 
example, you can see how Daniel and examples for us is that we pray for the kingdom, we work in it, we contribute to its general welfare, and we even fight in its armies. However, we must never forget that we are, as Daniel is, exiles, but we are pilgrims in Babylon. And it is never to be confused, Babylon should never be confused with the promised land or our eternal home. Even though we're citizens of it, it is not our actual citizenship. It's not our final status. So Augustine argues in his book that the kingdom of God advances, so this is him, I'm quoting him, the kingdom of God advances through the proclamation of the gospel, not through the property or properly coercive powers of the state. Although the church may take advantage of the relative peace that is possible in the earthly city. Okay? So God's mission is not seen by the state, but God's mission is seen where? Through the preaching of the gospel through his people. He continues on by stating that these two cities we find interwoven, as it were, in the present transitory world and mingled with one another. So they're not separate. There was a movement by the Anabaptists early on where they completely separated themselves as citizens. And they actually became at war with their own country. This is not what he's getting at. So we as Christians who help suppress evil or help preserve an enlarged society is a truly good deed. Us participating in that is good. But it can never be seen as ultimately good, right? Our country can never be transformed into the city of God. So us suppressing evil or setting people free is a good deed, but it's not the ultimate good. And it is not the work of God. So we, therefore, don't ask how we can save our country, no matter what country that you find yourself in, but how can it best be served in this time between the two citizenships that I live in, between the two cities, as we await for Christ to come and get us. Now, I'm sure many of you have read about the crusades (laughs) that happened throughout the Middle Ages. And it's sad Part of history. Christians of the day took the national covenant that was made with Israel, the one that was made at Sinai, and they used it as an allegory for their own situation. Uh, So they would say things like, you know, examples as, as the Muslims became known as the infidels to the Christian armies. And the kings would promise that if you go forth and conquer the enemy of God, then you will have rewards waiting for you. And so these wars began. And kings found themselves to be like David, taking armies into the Holy Land to cleanse it. So this was a confusion of the two cities. This is what Augustine was getting at, what trying to pull out of Scripture, is that we cannot confuse our earthly citizenships with that of our heavenly citizenship. And when we do, tragedies like um, the Crusades happen. Luther and Calvin, the famous reformers, both tried to bring back into light this concept, this theology of two kingdoms. It was lost during the Dark Ages. Uh, The Roman Catholicism combined this church and the state together. And basically to be a citizen of the state, you had to be a part of the church. And so there, that was a mingling of the two and the confusion of the two. And so Calvin says this, that we must recognize that we are, quote, under two-fold government, so that we do not, as commonly happened, unwisely mingle these two, which have completely different natures. Christ's spiritual kingdom and the civil jurisdiction are things completely distinct. Yet, this distinction does not lead us to consider the whole nature of government or a thing that of polluted. 
So pointing back now to John 18, the reason I wanted to point this out historically is that the church has failed in understanding what Christ is instituting here in John 18. What I'm trying to help you see is that we aren't the first to read John 18 and make application. And not only are we not the first to read John 18 and miss the application, which is why I wanted to give you a quick church history lesson. When Jesus arrives as the new king of Israel, he did not drive out Rome to take back his kingdom. This is what the Jews wanted. They welcomed him in on the donkey, king of the Jews, Hosanna, which you remember when I said, what does Hosanna mean? Save us now. They assumed Jesus was coming to sit on the throne of David and bring the nation of Israel back to its power. That's what they wanted. They missed what Jesus had been saying all along. So go back and read with me John 18, verse 36, and he responds to Pilate saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Can you see how Jesus is saying, the government of Israel is over. The kingdom that I am referencing is not in power as far as earthly kings are now. If they were, they would have what? Been at war. This is what does he tell Peter in the garden? Put your sword away. Peter had missed it. I find this passage very relevant for Christians uh, uh, having made the same confusion with Israel. Now, I know what I'm about to say is probably a little sensitive, but I hope you understand the heart behind what I'm going to say here is that we have been taught in the last 50 years that, that God is blessing our country because it's a nation that fears God. And, and, and we begin to think that this is a theocratic nation or this is a Christian nation. Uh, I just want to read to you a helpful commentary from Michael Horton that I found in response to this. He says, in our Christian circles in the United States today, we can discern a Christendom view where some imagine America to be Christian nation invested with a divine commission to bring freedom to the ends of the world or the ends of the earth. Of course, Christians have an obligation to proclaim the heavenly and everlasting freedom of the gospel and the earthly and temporal freedom from the injustice. But they are different. When we confuse them, we take the kingdom into our own hands, transforming it from a kingdom of grace into a kingdom of glory and power. He goes on, we also recognize an opposite view from characteristics of the Anabaptist perspective as evangelist D.L. Moody. This is a fascinating quote from him. It's actually a very famous quote. I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said to me, Moody, save all you can. And Horton concludes, in this view, I'm improving the lot of our neighbors in the world is like polishing the brass on a sinking ship. The point is, our government involvement is not connected to the church We word it this way. We are not called to transform this culture or nation or whatever nation or culture we find ourselves in. 
This is why Christ says, this kingdom is not of, my kingdom is not of this world. We become so concerned with our own personal welfare with our country that we forget <laughs> we 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 are not of this world. This is not our eternal city, not our Christian eternal city. And I mention this because I know there are many who watch the news and find themselves deep in depression and anxiety with what is happening around them. And there is a lot that's going on in our world, specifically in the United States. And we all wonder what life will look like in the coming future. What comforts will we lose? What freedoms that we enjoy now will be lost? And we, we struggle over this. And then Christians begin fighting with other Christians on social media or in person, defending their political views. We even begin to call into question the legitimacy of one's faith based upon a position or a politician they support. And we make statements and claims that the Bible never makes. So church, we are not called to place our hope in the city of man or in our country. This city, this world will one day fall into the judgment of God when it returns. It's not going to be redeemed by God here. He is bringing in his city. The apostle Paul helped bring a clarity to what Christ was communicating in John 18 when he gives instructions. So if you'll turn with me real quick to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, and then we'll also be in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to use these two just to help us understand. So, so Paul takes this statement from Christ and, and gives us some more clarity of living in two cities, two kingdoms. So Paul here, in referencing our responsibility and our interaction with the earthly kingdom, this kingdom, the city of man, look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you are doing wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and the avenger who carries out God's wrath in the wrongdoer. Do you realize who the leader he's referencing right now? Uh, Nero, who is far worse than any American president you can imagine, like by 10 times, okay? Just so you understand the context. Okay. Verse uh, 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God, attending to the very thing. Pay all... what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You can hear here that there is the way in which Christians govern themselves within government. I find it interesting that Paul is not giving us a political position 
He's not even giving us his political opinion. He is saying this institution, as crazy as it may be, is controlled by God. You need to trust that. And where does Paul turn the believer? He turns them to the function of our mission. Uh, as an example, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. So there's the second part and our citizenship and where we place our hope and where transformation happens, which is not within the governmental system, but transformation happens within our church for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. So verse 18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord and whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So turn with me real quick to chapter 4. So Paul starts this language of us being drawn together. And as we are drawn together, the people of God become the temple of God for the work of God. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Just so you understand, he's talking about the call to salvation, to call the trusting in Christ. So what does it mean to walk in a worthy manner? As a citizen, as he's already said, as a citizen of God within the people of God, with all humility, verse 2, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So as citizens of God's kingdom, our primary focus is to maintain the peace of the body. For without this peace, we cannot experience the rest and hope that the body should be offering. I find it to be quite unbiblical to see churches fracture and not maintain peace because often it's where they're putting their hope. When your hope is in the kingdom of God and understanding his mission, then your role and hope within the governmental kingdom or the city of man, should not fracture, should not cause disunity, should not cause us to be unkind and not gentle within the body of Christ. Let's keep reading. Jump down to verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is Equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul says, be eager to maintain the bond of unity. He goes on to explain that every person in the church is being equipped for the work of ministry, which means it's not just the role of the pastor and teacher, but every congregant. And he says, when every congregant does its role, then God's mission for the church is accomplished. And what is that? It's unification in love. So the church becomes our resting place, the place where we find true hope from this presence world's chaos. Remember, God never said he's redeeming the world. He's not creating a new Christian nation. The theocratic nation of Israel is not coming back. So to put your hope in a nation that somehow God is going to bless if we do the right thing, if we put the people in the right positions, if we hold the right uh, voting methods, whatever you want to put out there, you are going to be disappointed. 
But according to Paul and the New Testament, we are told that we can have hope and that we can experience rest and joy in the midst of chaos if we appropriately understand the church and the means of the church and what the purpose of the church is today. I think it's dangerous to live in this constant fear that God's judgment is coming upon America because of the political distinctions it has made. And I've heard it, and I've seen it, and I've felt it. And I'm going to just tell you, I think I can argue pretty plain from Scripture, it is not the church's job to transfer the culture transform the culture, and to prevent God's wrath from coming upon it. Even the promise, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves, that was given to the theocratic nation that does not exist anymore. That truth is not universal. It does not apply to all nations. We have to interpret things in context of what they meant and who they were meant for. I only mention this today because John places in the text this major theme throughout his letter that Jesus' mission was coming to accomplish his Father's kingdom, which is not established on this world, but ultimately one day will be when he's done finding the lost, redeeming his people. So Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, was only speaking of an eternal kingdom. He does this to Nicodemus. He says, you you want to enter the kingdom? You must be born again. That's how you get in. No, Nicodemus had been told his entire life, you must be a Jew, one who holds to the law, born of Abraham. So he goes up and he says, okay, okay, Jesus, so how is that I'm getting into your kingdom? He goes, oh, you have to be born again. Of course, Nicodemus goes, wait, no one can be born again. He goes, oh, no, it's of the Spirit. Because he's not speaking of a physical kingdom, he is speaking of a spiritual kingdom. So as early as John 3, Jesus, in John 6, he performs this miracle. They want to usher him in, and it says that he goes and hides himself so that after John 5, feeding the 5,000, they wouldn't bring him in as the king of the Jews. I think um, right before, so Jesus is in the upper room. It's John 15. This is the last thing I'll read for us this morning. Uh, Jesus offers a statement here. I think often we are trying to use the American political society to accomplish what Jesus has promised here in John 15. We want joy and peace and comfort. We want to feel rest and security. We can see uh, with everyone's own opinions how there's a lot of unrest with what's going to happen within our country. This is what Jesus offers to the church. So John 15, 11, we're going to read the whole thing just for the sake of time. It says this, These things I have spoken to you that my joy, not just joy, not arbitrary joy, not a joy, he says, my joy. Is there any other person in the universe who has more joy than Jesus? And the answer to that is, of course not. So he clarifies, he uses this interesting phrase. I tell you these things, I spoke these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And what is it that you speak to us, Christ? He says this, this is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. Church, there's two commands that Christ says he gives to the church. One is the first one, love God. What is the second one? Love your neighbor. And the promise that Christ gives to the church is that when you obey that second command, 
my joy can be in you. People often ask me, well, John, what is the Christian life about? What am I supposed to do if the gospel is real, that I come to God by faith alone? He does not require any works of me. I don't have to do anything to earn more of God's favor. If I'm in Jesus, God is completely uh, uh, pleased with me 100%. Nothing I do or don't do will change my position. What is left for me to do? And my answer to that is, how about pursue some joy, (laughs) In the midst of joylessness, how about pursue some rest in the midst of unrest? And how is it we accomplish that? People always point to personal effort, morality, discipline, the things I do and don't do. Jesus says, just love the person in front of you, and that's how you have not only joy, but full joy, my joy. In the midst of this chaotic world, and mind you, the world has always been in chaos. Governments have always been flipping in turmoil. America one day could never exist. It's not even existed that long. God doesn't need America to accomplish his mission. His people through the church have been accomplishing his mission since the day that Christ ascended to heaven. And the way that God has uh, accomplished his mission is through the church receiving the gospel as a gathered people, encouraging each other for the sake of love. And mind you, it's not ooey-gooey love. Jesus says it's the kind of love that requires the sacrifice of yourself. No greater love than this than a man lay down his life. When we as a church realize that real hope And real satisfaction and rest can be found in the gospel, within the people of God. It does not matter what happens around us. And just so you know, historically speaking, the church has flourished and has had its greatest moments of growth in the worst governments. And that's not an opinion. That's a fact. My encouragement to us as a church is that, listen, we have responsibilities as citizens. We should do them. We should suppress evil. We should help the poor. We should do what is good and right. But do not allow your hope to be found in that which is temporal and that which God has never promised to the church. He has promised you an eternal kingdom. He has promised you rest. He has promised you hope. And they're all yours through the good news of Jesus Christ. So this is why every week when we come, I want to... He have you here. I want to hear the message of God's good with you because of what Christ has done in your place. I want that to be my motivation to find love and patience for you. I want to be loved by you, not out of fear, but out of joy, knowing that Christ loves you unconditionally and you too can love me and I can love you. It is there that we can truly find rest. It is there we can find hope. And I'm telling you, this is the only place that the the Bible ever promises you rest and love. When the body functions properly, then it builds itself up in love. Nowhere else in the Bible does it say that. So what is it that's the responsibility of the Christian? Receive the word together. Receive the table together. And then in turn, give that same love you have received, that same grace you have received, give it to each other for the sake of strengthening ourselves together while we await the return of Christ.
Our mission is a pretty big one. No matter where we find ourselves, is to love each other and spread the gospel. That is our mission, and that's a big one. And the church is not doing a very good job, not our church, church in large, is not doing a very good job of staying focused on the mission. We will be made fun of church. We will be thought less of. We will be told that we have completely lost sight of our culture and what the responsibilities of our nation are. But let me encourage you. I think we can stand firm in Scripture knowing that what we're doing is right. I will never get up here and tell you who you shouldn't and should vote for. As a matter of fact, this might be the most political sermon I've ever had, and I don't really care. (laughs) God is the one governing. God is the one who will dictate what will happen. This is pretty obvious from Romans chapter 13. But that doesn't make you not responsible. So don't confuse what I'm saying. The one thing I want you to walk away with this morning is this. And all of the unrest and fear that you have, please understand that God is not absent and he is accomplishing his perfect will. And we are doing exactly what God has asked us to do. And we can find rest and hope in that.